Hello, and welcome to this week's episode on the screenplay to the 2004 film Crash, written and directed by Paul Haggis. If you're a regular listener, then you need to know this week that Alan is away, currently working on a project in Italy, and we're still working out our schedule for the rest of the year, but this week at least, I am joined by a wonderful guest, Epicy Lutumbe, who I'll be introducing to you shortly. Crash is a film with a complex cast of characters, so you might want to look up the IMDb page and remind yourself of all the different storylines, but fundamentally we'll be focusing on the larger themes of the story, its impact on us as readers of the screenplay, and looking back on it with a bit of hindsight now that 15 years have passed since its release. Thank you again for continuing to listen to the show. I hope this conversation helps you think and aids you with your own writing. Now on to the episode. Hello and welcome to the 21st Rewrite, the podcast about screenplays and the process of writing them. I'm William Caldwell and I'm joined this week by a very special guest, Epicy Latumbe. Thanks for having me on. Epicy is a writer, filmmaker and producer based in San Diego. She also has a background in feature film stunts, which is very apt for this week's episode. <laughs> Thank you very much. And uh, we will be looking over and discussing Crash, an Oscar-winning screenplay by Paul Haggis, released as a film in 2004. As described by another writer, the film is a humanist perspective of Los Angeles at the time. Just to begin with, in case our listener isn't too familiar with Paul Haggis, he was actually born in Ontario, Canada. So he's not an American. And I think this is going to be an interesting perspective because we're also both outsiders. We True. both weren't born in America either. <laughs> we all live here now. Paul Haggis moved to L.A. in 1975. So I think he does have enough of a familiarity with the city, which is... And culture. And culture, which is essentially what Crash is all about. It was inspired by a carjacking of his vehicle on Wilshire Boulevard in 1991. And this film actually came out just after he had written Million Dollar Baby as well, which was nominated for an Oscar for Best Adapted Screenplay in 2004. It won the Best Original Screenplay and Best Picture Oscar, quite controversially, in the 2006 Academy Awards. And then he later worked on Flags of Our Fathers and then the James Bond series, Casino Royale, the reboot of the James Bond series, Casino Royale and Quantum of Solace, and another film in the Valley of Ela as well. And then after that point, we don't hear too much from Paul Haggis again. He hasn't released anything significantly in the last few years. But yeah, let's take a look at maybe its legacy to begin with. Maybe. And then we will get into the actual the meat of the screenplay. Sure. Before we, we move on, uh, I didn't realize, or maybe I'd heard about that before, that he was inspired by a carjacking that happened to him. Interesting about Paul Haggis. He happens to be one of my favorite filmmakers in the sense that oftentimes when I read his work, I tend to feel like it's something that I could be sitting and experiencing myself. And I like his style of writing. You know, some of the other movies that you mentioned before are some of my favorite, Casino Royale being one of them. So I'm really looking forward to talking about this screenplay. He began writing this as a TV show in 2001. Stop. He, <laughs> yes. So in 2001, he, he realized TV was very different back then. I think in today's industry, he probably could have turned this into a TV show. But at the time, you would be talking about making 24 episodes of an hour each. 
he had a 35-page outline for it, which he then decided to write into a feature film. And then there's a, a few years of struggling to actually get this produced in the history of it. Some of the themes come up again that Don Cheadle agreed to produce it, and that didn't seem to be enough for for other producers, for studios. They wanted different names, let's say. Right. <laughs> why, why was Don Cheadle not enough. good enough? Exactly. But it's a very interesting script. His, his initial plan was to reinforce every stereotype you could think of in the first 30 minutes and then turn it all around. Wow. And um, depending on who you ask, he did that successfully. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, there's back and forth. When I read the screenplay or when I saw the film, I was moved. Now, those feelings were not necessarily happy feelings because I don't believe it was intended to make you feel happy. I think this is one of those pieces of art that comes across as if it was made to make you think and make you consider your own personal biases or your own personal ways of looking at the world and question them mm -hmm. and where they come from. Holding a mirror up to society. Correct. We're going to talk about film critics' opinions okay. on this as well. Okay. And I think we'll start with your one, and then I'm going to talk about Roger Ebert as well, who okay. Roger Ebert died in 2005, so this was one of the last <coughs> films he reviewed, and he is also one of our cultural wise men, I suppose, in I American say... film culture as well. So it's good that we did get to hear what he thought about it before he was he such a away. giant, I yeah. think, in filmmaking and criticism. And I, I think often as a filmmaker, oftentimes one of the things that I've learned is you have to filter who you're listening to because sometimes people give their criticisms without consideration for, or not even consideration without knowledge of what it takes to make the piece of art. So when it comes from somebody who is aware of all of the pieces that need to come together and they give their opinion, it carries a lot more weight because that person is well-informed versus someone making an uninformed opinion. So yeah. I think it's really important to listen to someone who knows what they're talking about, especially if that criticism can be used to make the next piece of work better. Yeah, and I also think it's interesting because with Ebert we get a snapshot of history, but he never gets the hindsight with which we're going to be reading the screenplay with hindsight and that Academy Award win for Best Picture certainly put the spotlight on this film in a way that probably never would have happened otherwise, I think. If it hadn't won the award, and if that hadn't been controversial because it had gone up against Brokeback Mountain, I don't know if the criticisms towards Crash would be as strong as they are. So I, I would like us, over the course of this conversation, to try and dismantle that a bit and see sure. which criticism we still think is valid and which we think might just be hyperbole. Okay. Well, I would like to start with Ta-Nehisi Coates, who is one of my favorite writers. The article that I read from him is from 2009, and he has some very harsh criticisms for the piece of work. He thought that it was a little lazy and focused a little too much on stereotypes. I can see where he's coming from. I don't necessarily agree all the way because I think that there were certain experiences that were very niche that were discussed and covered in the film that I do not think at the time had ever been on film before. Mm -hmm. it, it doesn't come across as lazy in that sense because I feel like 
Paul Haggis specifically was trying to get out of his comfort zone. And maybe he wasn't dealing with it in the same way that today it's more apt to say, I need a co-writer. I need someone who has had a specific cultural experience so that they can inform me. I think he was trying to strive on, just push on through, right. and but also get out of that comfort zone. He was definitely aware that he lived in a segregated city, an unofficially segregated city, right. in which his experience as a rich man in Hollywood was very different to most of his neighbors. Right. And I think that's one of the lessons to be learned moving forward is the importance of having a multicultural writer, writer's room. So there I agree with ta Coates in that some of the experiences, while I'm sure were very well researched, could have been a little bit more in depth. And some of the characters to some critics didn't seem as human as they probably could have been. Personally, once more, I appreciated very much actually just the idea of having different perspectives on the same piece of art just because for me that was one of the first times I saw that and the attempt to humanize different characters who may not have agreed with each other was something that I thought was inspiring. The other thing that I really loved reading and this this then comes up in Roger Ebert made the exact same assessment of the film Kathy Shulman, who was one of the producers, she said, we weren't trying to be realistic. It's a fable. And when it's read as a fable, different things start to come forward. Things that seem very cliche or cheesy, such as the snow in Los Angeles, that was quite specifically added in because Paul Haggis believed it it was the first year he moved to LA that it snowed. And he remembered thinking, if it could snow here, then anything is possible. So there's a lot of these things that are kind of littered in, but they only make sense as fables. And Roger Ebert called it a parable, which is kind of similar in that we know that some of these scenes where, you know, Ryan goes back to the burning car and it just so happens to be the same person that he had abused, molested. yet molested as a while working in the exact same job. In a city of that size, the likelihood of them ever crossing their paths again would were low enough anyway, right? Yeah. But when you see it as a parable, I think that starts to help this this film a bit more than if you see it as a slice of life Agreed. or reality. It's certainly not a real film in that no. sense, but yeah. it deals with issues that are far too real. And then no. I know that Paul Haggis himself has also said that he didn't think this needed to be the best picture either of that year. Um, I saw that and thought that was interesting. I mean, it's a very quickly made production as well. It was done in 30-something days. Yeah. To believe that this could be something so... I, I mean, this is following on from a couple of years before The Lord of the Rings, The, yeah. the Return of the King. <laughs> and I wonder, though, because sometimes yeah. even when productions, you know, for a feature film, you know, that amount of time... Sometimes that depends on how organized your team is, because if your team Mm -hmm. is extremely well organized and you've planned everything right down to the last shot, then having a very quick film schedule and turnaround schedule is possible. It just means a whole lot of pre-production, if that makes sense. But I wonder, though. uh, And it's the best use of everyone's time in that sense. But then again, the script needs to be perfect. 
because you're only getting you're not getting so much time to play around with things and True. let the actors play around with things you've read this and watched it alongside the film yes i don't think there's much ad-libbing going no. on right no i did not notice yeah. almost any there yeah. were a couple of lines in there i noticed more shortening from the script to yeah. when when it was evident that the visual medium was giving them what they needed anyway yes yes then yes i agree with some of the characters they did add a couple like maybe just a word or two here and there just to make things sound a lot more natural and i wonder maybe that was probably the actors trying to work with the production team as far as making it as authentic as possible but yeah even though that may have been the filming schedule, watching it didn't it didn't feel like a, it was rushed. No, absolutely not. It's it's definitely a professional quality film. Yeah. Yeah, the so the last thing of Paul Haggis is I want to consider during this talk as well is that sure. he he said he wanted to write this movie to bust liberals. It's, it's easy to bust folks we consider to be racist. It's those people who think we have it all figured out and who think we're good people, we're good liberals. Those are the people you can't trust because of there's a level of denial. That's an interesting perspective because, unfortunately, that to me is a bit more evidence of setting out with an agenda to begin with. And many scenes do feel... Like they have an agenda. <laughs> yeah, well, certainly that they feel like, I need to drop the racism bomb by the end of this scene. Mm -hmm. And often it's seemingly innocuous lines right at the end of the scene that's like, Oh, there's the racism. Gotcha. Just add it in right yeah. at the end to underscore it, to emphasize it. And I wonder about that, though. I do wonder about that because just living in 2019 and the news and our current administration, there's a lot of controversy there. And I think that what, as a country, the United States has had to do, what we have had to do is acknowledge that racism doesn't doesn't just look like one thing mm -hmm. and that there needs to be an acknowledgement of all of our history and not just a part of our history but audiences are more comfortable looking at it as history as opposed to this is what you're like today it's much easier to watch 12 years a slave and then walk out of that thinking look how far we've come as opposed to watching something that was set it's even set today, right? The, right. the two days that right. this is set on are yesterday and today, yeah. if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Or is it today and tomorrow? I think it was today and tomorrow. I yeah. might be wrong. So it's, it's, it's set on today and tomorrow, mm -hmm. <laughs> as opposed to specifying which year it is or anything like that. But I think then, then, then that brings us to what he was trying to do in the first place. Mm -hmm. He set out to make a movie that would make people uncomfortable. And he succeeded in doing that. It made people very uncomfortable. And considering Ta-Nehisi Coates' criticism of the film, I agree with his criticism when it comes to, when you look at the film as how realistic is this? Mm -hmm. It's not the most realistic. It does come across it like it has an agenda, which, you know, going by what you pointed out with where he wanted to bust liberals, clearly it, it did, but this almost seems like an inside conversation. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes, I think a lot of voices that feel unheard or feel silenced are almost outsider voices where it's a minority trying to speak to a majority. But when you have someone who is in the majority speaking to other people within the majority, 
the tone has to change. The The way that you speak to people has to change because you're speaking to people you know very well. Mm-hmm. And I almost want to argue that the reason Ta-Nehisi Coates felt the way that he did, I, I can't speak about his feelings, but based on his criticism, some of which I agree with, the reason that is there at all is because that film was not made for Ta-Nehisi Coates. Ta-Nehisi Coates and many people in the minority who face a lot of these issues on a day-to-day basis already know so many of these things. Mm-hmm. Paul Haggis is introducing certain ways of thinking to people who feel comfortable, to people who feel like, oh, this is in the past, to people who feel like we've come so far and there are certain things we no longer have to worry about. And he was trying to bring them to reality because they were living in a place that was a bubble. And mm-hmm. I think that when you come to today, 2019, he was right. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I was thinking about, this this film will definitely get you thinking just by itself. One of the things I was thinking about straight afterwards was Germany and the way they deal with this, their own history. In Germany, it's so important to teach every successive generation about Nazism. It's not necessarily a fear that this could happen again. It's going to morph and change with time, and you have to be very perceptive to see it coming. And the rise of the Nazi party to power, there were people consistently saying, that's nothing to worry about. Oh, Hitler will become chancellor, but he won't be able to do anything. He's just a figurehead if he's chancellor, things like that. That there, There were these gradual steps where things could slip away. It didn't just happen, you know, all at once. No, that mm-hmm. makes sense. And it, and it's the idea that you could argue in 1980, well, we don't really need to teach kids that strongly about Nazism anymore. But if you did that, what would happen by 1990, 2000, and now? It's it's about knowing about this snowball effect, I think, yeah. which is very important. It's, you can never let your guard down yeah. too much. Agreed. It's an agenda for the right reasons, I guess. I <laughs> suppose so. But I mean, at the end of the day, it's still an agenda. And uh, and something that I've I've learned, or I'm still continuing to learn as a writer, is that you have to be careful not to preach to your audience. And I think that that may have been one of the reasons to cause controversy is people f- feeling like they were being preached at. Mm-hmm. But if you're not going to learn it in school, you gotta <laughs> you have to learn it somewhere. Yes. So. I'm, I'm, I, um, and some of his characters feel that way. Sergeant Ryan in particular, he okay. feels that way. He, he feels like the world is preaching to him how he should act and behave. And one of the results of that is resentment in general, right? When, when people feel that they're being told how to think, it's right. different to them coming to that understanding themselves. I almost imagine people check out mm. when they feel like they're being told how to think and what helps me as a creative is the lesson there in that trying to find a way to interact with people or trying to find a way to help people consider a different perspective without telling them what perspective that is, is an art. It's an art form and one that I'd like to grow in personally as a fan of Paul Haggis's style of writing. If I may, I'll use an example in George Martin. George R. R. Martin, who is the writer for Game of Thrones. He wrote the books and consulted for the television show as well. 
And something he does very well in the earlier work, actually in all of his work, is he writes about people, their experiences and their thoughts. He does not tell you what to think about them. He just tells you about them. Yeah, he presents them to you. Yes, this is who this person is. He writes that person true to character and they make decisions based on their character traits. And it's never an issue of morality. Famously so. It's never an issue of trying to tell you who to like or trying to convince you of whom to like. So personally, I was drawn to that. And, you know, I was drawn to being able to form my own opinions about the way things were happening and the time frame or the fictional time frame that this was supposedly set in. And it, it was a lot more enjoyable and engaging because I didn't feel like I was being told what to think. Mm -hmm. And I think that's probably where, as a writer, I would like to draw from a different influence to still be able to talk about different characters, but present them as opposed to try to get people to like or dislike. I, I almost feel like sometimes the characters say things out loud that we know are not true, just so we know not to trust them all the time. Anthony, I think, is a, a great example of that. Okay. That he's constantly got these conspiracy theories yes. that he's voicing. Yes. And so we're we're watching and, and listening and observing and we think, well, we know he's got that wrong. So we know we can't trust him as an authority. And every other character, I think, gradually there we understand no one really knows what's right or wrong. They're figuring it out as they go. I found him particularly annoying. <laughs> so I would like to point out that this was the film. So Ludacris, who plays Anthony, mm -hmm. came into the public awareness as an extraordinarily talented rapper mm -hmm. and a lyricist. He's a brilliant, brilliant lyricist. Oftentimes, musicians might want to go into acting and are not taken seriously because oftentimes they don't take it and the work seriously. He came across as one of those people who took it very seriously. And I thought he did a phenomenal job of portraying the character. He definitely did a good job of annoying me mm -hmm. with his conspiracy theories, with just his refusal to just see himself in the mirror. Yeah. The character, of course, not the actor. The character just seemed to refuse to see who he was and his conspiracy theories came across as just excuses to be <laughs> honestly a really horrible person yeah to be evil almost. yeah yeah um he like everyone he has good moments in the film and bad moments right but yeah he's certainly his reaction to running someone over for example is <laughs> is not He's trying to do this whole, I guess it's the, it's, it's all part of this lifestyle, right? Of right. stealing cars, carrying guns, right. this not showing any weakness. Making a buck. But yeah, it's, it's, we also see the degree to which he's convinced himself of how it's everyone else's fault, not his. Right. No personal responsibility. Mm -hmm. That character also felt preachy. Mm -hmm. He reminded me of who in the African American community we would sometimes referred to as a hotep. And could you explain that for <laughs> for non-savvy uh, non listeners? 
I I would uh, actually prefer to look. I'll look it up online look it up and I'll, exactly and I'll, what they and I'll give that you <laughs> I'll give you the description because uh, sometimes my perception might be biased or skewed. So the original term hotep is an Egyptian word that roughly translates to be at peace. However, in the African American community, and I don't know that this is necessarily an affectionate term. Sometimes it's you're making fun of someone when you call them a hotep. Okay, it's, you're talking about a fictional character, right? Here, right. So it's not you know. Too well, bad. I, I also want to be careful because there's some terms that are more cultural and they're not necessarily defined somewhere that you can go and look up. But when I've seen that word used before, it is used to make fun of someone who's essentially a know-it-all. Mm-hmm as far as theories of why things are and the person who is being called a hotep tends to be very well read but has come to the wrong conclusions yep <laughs> and so they seem at first they seem very 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 smart because they're very well read and usually when you're very well read there are a lot of things that you know that most people don't but when you sit and you really listen to what they're saying it doesn't seem logical sometimes other times it just seems like there's a bias in the way they drew their conclusion, or sometimes it just seems outright wrong. Mm-hmm. And generally people who are referred to as hoteps are people who are not willing to listen to other people's perspectives. Yes. And so this particular character just reminded me of that sort of person. I get it. No, I, I completely understand. And one of those one of those theories, for example, the reason why Buses have big windows so that everyone can watch the people of color who are on the bus be humiliated. But then you, you just say, I just think of the town I grew up in, very small uh, rural English community. We have the same sized bus windows and most of the population is white. So everyone on the bus is white. So mm-hmm. it's, not, yeah. it's not like there's this global conspiracy to have these big bus windows, for example. You yeah. know, do you know what I mean? Yeah. So it's, it's because yeah. his, his world is so small, though, because that is an inner city world that he has grown up in yeah. as well. And he's, I, I think that's part of the, the message in, in Crash is, yes, someone like Paul Haggis, he knows his world is limited, but also Anthony's world is very limited. Very. And therefore it's going to be actually quite hard for these two people who live in the same city to come to a common agreement because they both have such distinct perspectives. Yeah. And to a certain extent, there was some sort of redemption for that character at the end of the of the film where he was held accountable mm-hmm. to a certain extent. And what I appreciate and I think that Paul Haggis probably had some help were the characters of color, from the Korean characters of color to the African-American characters of color to the uh, Latinx characters of color. It, While there's so much criticism, I think he did have help because there's some conversations that were had in that film where if you're not a part of a community, you would not know that people have those conversations and I think when the Anthony character it was being taken to task that is a conversation that is often considered an inside conversation where he was being told that someone was ashamed of him and who he was allowing himself to be so 
It's not lazy. It's not what you're lazy. trying to say. Yeah. It's not lazy. I think I think that yes, it could have been a little bit more fleshed out, but I think Crash should have been a television show. Yes, and then you would have just in your first season at least 10 hours yeah. to explore the themes right. and and not have to push everything together in such a way. Yeah. And just for a, a last because I did talk about Roger Ebert a lot, and then sure. I didn't give you everything about <laughs> what his course. perspective was. Yeah. But the thing that I that was very evident with how you said uh, Anthony's story ends, Roger Ebert was talking about this in his review. He says, We understand quickly enough who the characters are and what their lives are like, but we have no idea how they will behave, because so much depends on accident. Crashes a movie with free will, and anything can happen. So we do see this. It's not this it's not always a as simple as we'll have character A do something bad and then they learn their lesson. It's also about this concept of free will that people can change. However, someone's bad day doesn't is someone else's nightmare. Yeah. Yeah. And how each person is reading the same situation. Yeah. I think that happens with Sergeant Ryan a lot. It's a lot of his bad days. He's learned that racism is a weapon he can use to make people feel worse as opposed to necessarily having white supremacist mentality. Right. <laughs> He's actually more someone who's learned to wield racism as a weapon to make himself feel better. Right. And instead of dealing with his own pain. Right. Yeah. And I think that that, you know, that is something that especially at that time when these were not necessarily the discussions that people were having, it was important to address. That character, Ryan, is problematic in so many ways, but something that I think at least started a conversation was that reality of people who feel small and then try to use whatever weapon they can to make others feel even smaller so that they can feel better about themselves. And that was not a conversation I think that we were having at the time. And I like that at least that was introduced into the conversation. I mean. Yeah, I, I saw it recently, actually. There was okay. uh, a man who was, um, he was in a mobility scooter. He was very drunk or on drugs. And he dropped a load of things and he was with a companion who was equally drunk who was kind of stumbling alongside him wow. and he dropped all this what looked like rubbish in the street and he was asking people around him to pick it up but it, because of his attitude because of his aggressiveness people were avoiding him and then he started shouting well trump's gonna get you you're all all you mexicans you'll be going soon that kind of stuff so you could see it was coming from his pain though yeah it was it was definitely coming, but he he knew that that was a weapon he could use on the strangers in the street around him to and, try and actually stab a dagger in them. Right, but I think that that is an example of something that happens on a much larger scale, mm -hmm. because that if when you take that little bit and then you apply it to large groups of people, the confusion to a lot of liberals as to why certain people have certain leanings makes. Not that it makes sense, but you can see how that can happen on a grander scale where someone appeals to people's pain. I mean, we've seen this happen in history over and over and over where someone comes in 
and appeals to people's pain and speaks to them in a way that acknowledges that pain. And they tell those people, I can help relieve your pain. And then he essentially becomes their weapon to be able to make themselves feel better in spite of the fact that that person is doing everything but helping those people feel better. Mm -hmm. And that has happened in Germany. That has happened across Europe. That has happened in some countries on the continent of Africa. And that has happened or is happening in the United States. And with that, <laughs> let's uh, let's jump into the screenplay okay. itself. So usually what we do on the show is we'll either break down the screenplay okay. linearly mm -hmm. or we will go character by character. And I think with Crash, it completely makes sense to, to work character by character, treating most of them as couplets, I would say. Um, so uh, Graham Waters and Rhea are a couple. Mm -hmm. Their story goes hand in hand. John Ryan, the the sergeant in the LAPD, and uh, Officer Hansen, mm -hmm. their stories go hand in hand as yeah. well. We have Rick and Jean, which is Brendan Fraser and Sandra Bullock's characters. Right. They're a couple, and Sandra Bullock's uh, character actually has some some great moments, and then I feel like she fizzles out towards the end, but they're still worth looking at, okay. especially as they were... Surprisingly, the biggest actors were put into Smaller. those roles. So I, I feel like... The Paul, most controversial roles? Possibly, yeah. <laughs> but I feel like maybe Paul Haggis thought there was more there than, than I, actually came out. You know, what I, you know yeah. what I think about why they may have done that? Because those characters are so loved in American culture. People know that Sandra Bull... I don't know if she'd already adopted her children by that point. And maybe this is just a lazy assumption on my part, but people know that Sa Sandra Bullock is a decent human being. People know she's very popular for being a wonderful person and mm -hmm. a, a kind, thoughtful human being. So putting her in a role that is nothing like that doesn't hurt her image because people have had time to know who she is. If you'd put an unknown in that role, that may have uh, that may have hurt them I in some way or another. Yeah, I see what you mean. Though. And 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 I think the same thing is true for Brandon Fraser, who is loved in American film and television, and has played in many roles where he's the hero and yeah, he's especially the person at who this two thousand and four was just after the Mummy, I right? Believe, so. so he didn't. People weren't gonna think, oh well, now we know who he really is, because oftentimes I found that people, when people watch a movie, they kind of mix. <laughs> fiction yeah. with reality but that's my theory so we've got those three couples already then we have cameron and his wife christine and we have peter and anthony and there are many more characters actually in the screenplay farhad and dari okay are also pretty relevant to the yes. story yes and daniel there's so many to talk about. Yeah. Um, so we might have I, to limit ourselves to five minutes for a couple of those stories. Fine. But uh, uh, and I'm trying to remember, was Daniel the locksmith? Yes. Uh, I so hope we talk Daniel about Pena. him. Because yeah. I, I really, that was my favorite character. He's he's certainly the most noble character. Yeah. And Maybe that's why. <laughs> and he, he suffers the most because he's he's the most stereotyped as well, in a way. His story leads up to... The moment of the film that 
you'll either be sold on it and you'll love it. If if that moment doesn't work for you, you're Probably not going to like Crash. No. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, we've got lots of different couples to talk about in that sense. So okay. we can start off because it is the first few pages of the screenplay. We're introduced to Detective Graham, played by Don Cheadle, and his partner and lover, Rhea, played by Jennifer Esposito. Yes. I liked the voiceover over the black. And, you know, kind of gives you time to settle in and, you know, really pay attention. I didn't know what to think because I'm not from Los Angeles. I don't, I haven't yet had the opportunity to live in Los Angeles. I've been, but it was interesting to hear about Los Angeles from quote unquote, someone who lived there and their perspective. Cause that's not what he was saying where, you know, people barely look at each other, or interact with each other. And everything just seems so separated. That that did not match my perception of Los Angeles. But then again, it is a perception versus the reality of somebody who actually lives there. My understanding of it is a more working class perception of it. Because if you're working class, you need to get to work every day. Yeah. There's so much traffic. So you get up, you're stuck in traffic, you work, you go home. By the time you get home, it's already six, seven because of all the traffic Ooh, and yeah. you feel like life is slipping away from you that you're yeah. not interacting but yes if you're going there for the day and you're just enjoying your time there you don't think of it like that you don't think i'm stuck in the car all day right. and i i'm not interacting with anyone because right. you're going out of your way to find things to do right. in the city yeah I, that's maybe where i'm where i think he's coming from uh they are police yeah so i assume they're they probably spend a lot of time in their car yeah. as detectives. True. And I will say, though, I did identify with that perspective just living in the United States as an, uh, as an American, where it seems like people are so distracted with their own lives, their devices, that they're not really seeing each other. And I remember this was all the way back in high school, where I was making a comment to my family and I said, I always see the houses, I always see the cars, but I never see the people because I noticed that people were not interacting with each other and walking down to your neighbor's house to say hello. Or, And, and again, that may have had a lot to do with my perception being foreign born mm -hmm. of the United States where I saw a lot of film and television where people went to their neighbor's house for pie mm -hmm. or children would play with their neighbors. And I didn't really see very much of that when I first moved. And so on that level, I identified with what that character said, where it just seemed like people would just do horrible things just to be able to interact with each other. Yeah. And that's the thing. When, when you go to downtown LA as well, yeah, it feels more intimidating. It's certainly more intimidating than downtown San Diego. Gotcha. There's more lawlessness, I suppose, in, in the downtown area and certainly other neighborhoods around the city as well where you can feel that people would feel unsafe walking. Yeah. They'd prefer to be in a car. But then what he's kind of getting at is that it's better to interact a little bit than not at all because you're depriving yourself. And then it's just a theory. And obviously Rhea is saying... I think you've, <laughs> you, <laughs> you know, may we, have just gone on the deep end. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, just, it's not that deep, you know. I, I will say that when, so I, I hadn't seen this film since probably about 2000, 
2006, 2005, so I had forgotten pretty much everything about it. Then I read the screenplay, and then I watched it. So when I was reading the screenplay, the, the end of their first interaction, when, when Rhea gets out the car and she's talking to one of the other cops and the woman, Kim, Kim Lee, who has hit her with her car, Oh, um, that was the, that was hard to watch. There's a but there's a line where she and says, <laughs> uh, "It says Rhea, it's not ma'am, it's detective," and that bit actually the camera's already swinging away at that point. But when I read that in the screenplay, I thought, "Oh, whoa!" Like that's a that's she a was great, trying to use her power yeah. as well. Yeah, exactly. She wanted she wanted this woman to know that you mess with the wrong person. Mm-hmm. I didn't catch that when I was reading through. When you're watching it, that little interaction is the camera doesn't find it interesting anymore it starts to shift over to um graham who's gone to look into the car yeah looking on the the hillside and yeah the it's an interesting start certainly because you're thrown straight into it and <laughs> yeah you have this argument and there's racial slurs on both sides well yeah there's a slur on the side of uh kim lee and ria she does mock her accent and she does claim that she's a bad driver because she's Asian. So yeah. straight away we're getting into... The stereotypes. Yep. And like I said, there's a racism bomb <laughs> every couple of pages here. These characters, we find out a lot more about Graham in particular. As an individual, he seemed always somewhere else. He always seemed like he was not where he was physically. Always lost in thought. It seemed to me that he was just overwhelmed with life in general. That's kind of like uh, Jean, Sandra Bullock's character as well. It yeah. to the same problem. Yeah. And in spite of his mother's attitude towards him, still trying to be a good son to her and loving her and not necessarily needing to take all the credit, it's almost as if he felt like he was out of control but would continue to do his best. That's That's, that's just the general feeling that I got from him and i honestly felt the worst for him mm -hmm. i did especially as a big i mean i don't know how much we're going into this especially as a an older sibling mm -hmm. i felt the worst for him i think the question of his family that brings so much humanity into it the, of yeah. course the the fact that we are following his brother and not realizing that yeah we're, we, we're not meant to know who his brother is until yeah. the very end but to me that the scene where he has the reality check with flanagan who basically says to him you and your brother had the same opportunities in life how do you explain that one those are the things that i think are those those questions that are keeping him up at night yeah. i suppose and he he does seem to be Suffering from a bit of imposter syndrome, in a way. Yeah. He feels a bit out of place. What, did you find that preachy when he said that to him? about? To be honest, I think the conversation with Flanagan is the best part of the film. Okay. Much more than seeing Ryan save Christine from the burning car, and more than Fahad trying to shoot Daniel. Right. I honestly think that scene was the most... The most clear summary of what this is about gotcha. is that there are no answers. Yeah. And even though Flanagan himself is talking in a way that comes across as quite inappropriate, mm -hmm. uh, he's making some points that don't have easy answers yeah. because he really gets into it. He talks about 
And I think that's reflected in what you said about Anthony earlier as well. Um, is it what you make of it yeah. or is it society? And that's a very difficult question because it's easy to take either side because there's so much evidence on both sides yeah. as well about personal responsibility and Versus about inherent yeah, structural issues that yeah. you'll never be able to beat. Yeah. Or that it would take a lot more than just one person or one small group of people to beat. Because mm -hmm. I am holding on to the hope that the structural... Because, again, like you, I hadn't seen this movie in quite a while. I did watch it last year just because, like I said before, in, in SPO. But I just continue to hold out hope that some of those deeply set structural issues can be fought and can be overcome once there's an entire consciousness of the entire population to seeing what the society is truly seeing it for what it is and how it actively affects one group this way and holds up another group the other way. But, you know, like you said, we don't have all the answers and mm -hmm. it's going to take, I really do think or wish that this had been a television show. Yeah. Versus a film, because film with the film you only have so much, so much time. Yeah, and it feels very compressed. But Graham's decision is, his decision ultimately is, if you were to pick, without the full scope of the knowledge, who was responsible in this this um this shootout between this white cop who had killed two other black men previously and had just killed a third, and this black undercover detective, who had been shot in that shootout, but appeared to be also hiding a significant amount of money from a cocaine deal. Yeah. But was supposedly an upstanding member of the community. Yeah. Uh, and he just has to pick which one will he go to. And Flanagan twists it around on him and says, what if your brother had got a second chance? That three strikes rule is pretty tough, isn't it? That kind of decision is so much more nuanced than anything else in the film. Yeah. Because it really puts it down to a personal decision. Yeah. And then back to the quote we heard from Roger Ebert earlier as well. This is still a film about free will. Yeah. What will he pick? We know he's a hardworking guy. Another great use of the screenwriting tactic there is the only sex scene in the film is with him and Rhea. Yeah. And it's interrupted by him answering the phone, which tells us a lot immediately About that's something him. you can yeah you yeah. can you can learn a lot from a character through sex scenes if they're done properly yeah because what's that, more important that to tells you? us yeah yeah and it's it's finding out about work it's he he wants to do the right thing at work and his gut has been telling him that the guy who was murdered was actually guilty but when the question is posed to him that way and what does his community need? Versus. Yeah. Gosh. So, yeah, for me, that's the most nuanced part of the film yeah. because it, there is no clear right or wrong answer. And the characters specifically know there's no right or wrong answer. Yeah. So they the decision is very open. Yeah. In, in all of the other scenes, I think it's maybe too clear what is the right thing to do and how obviously wrong the action yeah. that's taken is. What, what do you make of that, though? Like, if you're watching a for your personal enjoyment, just as a consumer, would you rather the question is not answered and you're just presented with the different perspectives and questions, or would you rather it's clear 
I always like seeing truth spoken to power. Okay. And that does come up a little bit in that scene. He he does try and speak his what he honestly believes. Yeah. And that's all in the dialogue. So as long as there is a character who's acting authentically, that's it doesn't matter if the situation is resolved or not. Yeah. Something going back to George R. 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 Martin there, I suppose. Yeah. Is, this is who this yeah, person is. <laughs> reoccurs in his work yeah. a lot of the time. Yeah. We see if a character is acting authentically that they're enjoyable, no matter if they're Ramsey Bolton all the way up to yeah. so, who's someone who's particularly good. Um <laughs> Tyrion. Aria. Everyone loved oh, yeah. or Arya. Yeah. But I think most people loved Tyrion because he was honest with himself about mm -hmm. who he was and he he never tried to hide that from anyone else and he was he was open about his wounds and he was open about trying to heal those wounds and failing miserably and i think how i want to relate relay that to daniel the locksmith what i loved about that character was the way he handled a lot of the obviously racist things that were thrown in his direction mm -hmm. in and he he didn't come across as defeated to me no he didn't come across as bitter he came across as someone who understood the world that he lived in and was determined to be his true self in spite of his environment mm -hmm. and to live his life the way he he wanted to just in the detail sorry maybe i should wait until we start talking about no that let's character. Uh, this is a good segue into okay. daniel okay I think. Um, uh, in in the detail with where he's with how in the screenplay they want they they essentially lay the groundwork for what's going to come later in the details of how he speaks to his daughter about the and they did change that from the screenplay to the film like there are certain details that were changed but that's not the point the point is the detail where he tells her that they moved yes we don't live in that place anymore you don't have to worry about those things anymore it communicates so much without feeling like you're being preached at mm-hmm and I think that, that that's a, a tactic in screenwriting where you have a character who doesn't know anything and then you have to explain to that character. The audience then f no longer feels like they're being preached at because one person is speaking to the person who doesn't know anything. So you just feel like you're watching versus if you have the Officer Ryan character who is just doing going about his day and doing what he's doing and saying the things that he's saying with an with an obvious agenda to try to get you to see him a certain way. I think that a lot of screenwriters do that where they'll have a character who essentially is completely oblivious to what's going on and things need to be explained to them and then they end up being able to communicate large amounts of information about different characters. So yeah, we it's called an info dump. It's oh, the, okay. the well, official there you go. term for it. <laughs> there a, you go. How do you get an info dump across? One of the tactics is yeah. you need to have, if it's a dialogue and two people know, then you need to have a third person in that room to whom they turn around and quickly address that point and say, well, you don't, you don't know this, but we're talking about this. Right. So it sounds natural. It never makes sense when you say, as you know, your majesty. Yeah. Why it, would you? Why would you tell him? So that sounds like trash. Yeah, it's it's the whole first part of Avatar as well. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Story for another day. Yeah. <laughs> but I loved that. I loved mm -hmm. you know that that little detail communicated so much, 
we moved. He's the sort of character that doesn't want to be stagnant, that wants better for his family. Takes responsibility takes, for it. If right. that place is not safe, I will literally remove my family if I have to. Yeah. He certainly wouldn't have left the door broken. Right. Like Farhad. Right. Saying it's someone else's fault. Saying it's... Yeah. 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 And when you combine all of those things, in that, in, when we're first introduced to that character... That was such a clever way to introduce a character that everyone could love. Mm -hmm. And the fact that we do like him adds to the showpiece scene at the end. Yes. I think. Yes. It, because you wouldn't be able to get those moments, the, the two deus ex machina salvation moments in the film do need to take place on the characters we feel most sympathy for. Yeah. As opposed to... If it had happened to Officer Ryan, I think people yeah, would have just been like, well... well they would have Sorry. wanted him to have died. Yeah. Um, would people have cared so much about Anthony being shot hitchhiking as opposed to Peter? There's these levels that yeah. we, we have a certain level of attachment or sympathy for a character. So true. That is so true. Which is very hard to write in. And that's why this screenplay is quite underestimated because it does do so much with the page. It actually doesn't run to 120 pages. So most feature screenplays run to 120 pages, more or less. This is 113. Yeah. So there could have been seven more pages of yeah. material to flesh out some of these characters, and it didn't need that. And it never felt uh, slow. It never felt like it was meandering. Usually any scene that was seemingly irrelevant was tied up to something by the end of the story. Yeah. Or even that it, it's shorter than most screenplays, it didn't feel rushed either. And yet somehow fit in all of these characters. Yeah. As we're talking about Daniel, um, we can look at his, his counterpart as well, which is Farhad, yeah. who is the uh, Iranian. He owns a, a corner shop. Corner shop. Essentially. Yeah. Um, I, I did feel sympathy for him. Oh, yeah. We're, we're certainly encouraged to feel sympathy for him because the original way we're introduced to him he's is, being... is when he's trying to buy a gun and he wants to buy it for his own safety. Mm -hmm. He's concerned about the safety of of his shop the fact that he's talking in farsi with his daughter bothers the gun the gun store owner yeah one of the things that i learned or one of the first times that i learned not to write things in too on the nose was the line where the gun store owner asks his daughter do you know what those are i remember when i first watched the film i was like so you're not going to tell us what those are mm -hmm. and then i learned and then, of course, you learn much later what those are by putting two and two together. And I mean, of course, they... And it plants a seed in the audience they're expecting to find out. Yes. But, or why would he say that? Yeah. Right. Instead of saying, why do, you, why do you want to buy blanks? Or something too obvious or just not commenting on it. It's the perfect amount. And right. It's, it's quite subtle. Right. And I think that subtlety is part of what makes the movie good. Also demonstrating another tactic of only putting things in that are relevant to driving the story forward, mm -hmm. which is why this film could afford it to have 113 pages because everything that was written down was relevant to driving the story forward, I think. Yeah. And talking of Chekhov's gun, which is essentially from the Russian playwright uh, Chekhov, he said, if there's a gun on the table in act one, it better have been shot by act three. It's the same thing that most of the props in this film do come around almost in a way that seems 
impossible, as we find, because uh, the these little... characters are constantly crossing each other. Yeah, they, yeah the um, the statues. Yeah, as well. yeah, the little statue of Saint is it Saint, Saint Christopher. Saint Christopher, yeah. excuse me. You know, uh, that was another one. It's like, why does he keep playing with that thing? And you see him, and you see why it's. May I talk about? Uh, you can talk about anyone. Okay. Well, <laughs> but just, do we need just, to talk in, about Farhad quickly no, no, no. Oh, and yeah, finish sure, up sure, with him? Sure, maybe sure. Let's finish up with him. Yeah, Sorry, yeah. I was going to run away with that one. But okay, sure. Dory is another of the characters we feel pure sympathy for as well. Yeah. His daughter. Yes. Uh, she's navigating this difficult situation of actually having to be his interpreter. Yeah. For for both of her parents, really. She. Yeah. And this happens a lot with second generation children that they find that they have an additional function where they start having to take care of their parents in some way because they're the ones who are able to navigate the linguistic landscape of the country. She's able to buy the gun, no problem. Yeah. It, it's almost as if the the owner recognizes her as one of his own as opposed to Farhad who can't speak his language right and i think that there's a i mean there, there's such there's such truth in that that there, there's a generation that came over here um that were born somewhere else and then there's a generation that was born here that's a completely different niche than i think probably you and i who speak english fluently and we we came here like we're the generation that came here yes very different yes <laughs> because just navigating the immigration system in the first place yeah, is easier different. speaking English. Yes. I thought his daughter was one of the other noble characters. Yes, she is. And she's been planning from the beginning a way of protection. She, she, she's a protector. As I, as I mentioned, this, this sense that the second generation finds itself in a parenting role to their own parents. Yeah. That I think that's part of it. You can... You can almost see this scene uh, happening backwards with a father buying the first gun for their child and choosing to put blanks in the gun, fearing what could happen if they actually did ever use it. It's it's the same thing, really. Yeah. So I, I really like that aspect of Dory's character. I wonder, finding out that she worked at the hospital, and I don't know how, how I don't know how how you felt about that. I think the only one, if it's completely necessary for the film to have uh, Sergeant Ryan meet Christine a second time, it's better to not have any of the other characters bump into each other so that that one-off coincidence can seem like a coincidence. Yeah. Having Dory in the hospital towards the end just felt unnecessary because it it's trying to say oh they're all still connected yeah. even beyond but it didn't add anything to that it scene didn't. really i don't think it did either it felt it felt unnecessary it felt distracting and that's the important thing to yeah. not distract us i yeah. think the only thing it really serves for is just suggesting that she is more of a carer than yeah. just with her parents that she's yeah. also doing a very difficult high stress and important job but which seems like something that would break most normal people because i've heard many people discuss the difficulty of being a caretaker now of course her parents it, it, it probably a different context but i already thought she was noble mm -hmm. i i felt like that was highly unnecessary it 
especially because it didn't add, it didn't drive her character forward. I mean, like you said, yeah, okay, maybe it added to, okay, it reinforces the idea that she's a caretaker. Yes, but in that scene, I, I didn't get the impression that it drove her character forward. The other characters, it just didn't add anything. It, it seemed so contrived. There's a delicate balance here because every time that something like that happens and it breaks a spell for the audience or for the reader of the screenplay, it essentially reminds us that what we're watching isn't real. And then that gives ammunition to the film's detractors, mm -hmm. I think, in saying, well, look, it is clearly a bad film because it keeps focusing on these these gimmicks of mm. putting the same characters in the same locations. So I think it should only happen when it's absolutely necessary for the story. And that, I think that's one of the weaknesses of, of the film. On the other hand, for example, the way of getting Farhad to find out where Daniel lives is done really well. Mm. The fact he remembers, he's, he's already phoned the locksmiths and they won't give the guy's name away. And then he remembers about the form. That he was that, supposed to fill out. Yeah. And then goes and retrieves that. To me, that works. That's because there's a, there's a character-driven mm -hmm. decision going on. And that's all you really need to make a story work. Yeah, There's so many theories of how to write films and write effective stories, heroes' journeys, and things like that. But as long as we're seeing characters make decisions that seem true to them, that should be sufficient for us. Yeah. And what we really get are these very small portraits of characters. A very small portrait of a very dark and desperate moment in Farhat's life, essentially, yeah. where he feels like he's lost everything. Yeah. And he feels weak as well. He feels like... Helpless. He feels helpless. Yeah. He feels like he needs his daughter to take care of everything for him. And he feels like there's just one thing he could do to keep control over... He's not really thinking it through either. I mean, yeah. it's how these moments define people, yeah. I think, is really important that the film isn't talking just about... It's saying, okay, racism is everywhere. That's yeah. that's crash, right? <laughs> In yeah. every scene, there's racism. But then it's also about how one tiny moment can define you for the rest of your life. Yeah. And Farhad takes that risk. Luckily, he isn't able to see it through because his gun is loaded with blanks but or he saw it through but he was lucky his gun was yeah. loaded with blanks <laughs> exactly what i do want to do is compare something that i noticed as we were that i didn't notice when i was reading or watching but as we're talking about it i was like huh that feeling of helplessness and how people deal with it right there's there's a parallel between officer ryan and farad mm -hmm. they both felt like they were at the point of absolute helplessness where Officer Ryan is struggling about being the caretaker for his father and is desperate to try to get help and is frustrated by not being able to get that help and in his feelings of helplessness decides that he's going to wield a weapon. He's like, well, I can't make the black person who was on the phone pay for treating my father this way so i'll just find whichever black person i can find and treat them like trash and that's what he does in his moment of feeling extraordinarily helpless farad uses all his resources to track this locksmith down and decides that he's going to make him pay for 
quote unquote, putting him in that position where he's lost everything and aims to kill him. And what I realized with that parallel comparison is I think that they were trying to say something about humanity and how far we will go as human beings when we feel like everything has been taken away from us mm-hmm. and we are completely helpless. But it's interesting how resourceful you can be for doing harm in the same way that characters can struggle and people can struggle to find that same resourcefulness to take care of themselves. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. that's and that's an interesting thing. It it's suggested and is probably true as well that it's easier to harm than to take find a step a back, yeah. yeah, to breathe in and figure out, well what can I do yeah. to still make my situation a bit better. Yeah. Yeah, there's a there's a lot going on in that story with Danielle and his daughter as well. That's probably the most beautiful scene in the film is when he gives her the the cape the impenetrable it was for me and i think just in itself that story perhaps could have been a film in in some way or or a short just of him and his daughter and the the relationship with this particular person who just happened to come come, to his home yeah come into his life by by accident really and it it makes the scene powerful when we think that the girl has been shot and it's it's kind of interesting as a as a writer to read this yeah it says daniel knows she is dead without even looking the horror registers on his face and on farhat's but then daniel forgot something lara's wearing her impenetrable cloak which is why she's able to lift her head and look into his eyes that's just in the action lines, which is very, very interesting. It says, Daniel feeds her back, no sign of a wound, no sign of a hole. This is impossible. So one of those things is how you convey in the visual medium something that is, is without dialogue. And I think, I think this these is are where strong lines. This, not just strong lines, brilliant acting and direction. I, I agree with you that and like a short could have been made between Daniel and his daughter and Farhad because to me this was the heart of the, the for me and I, I that may be different for other people I don't you know for me this was the heart of the film it made me care I became emotionally invested when he came on screen and the way he reacted to being treated badly and the way that he loved his daughter that drew me in the other stuff was interesting and I would have watched it anyway but that made me feel deeply and he seemed resolved like there was a resolve to the the actor's performance where i mentioned before doesn't matter what's going on around me i'm in control of myself and my emotions and my actions he just seemed to have that resolve every time you saw him and when he first goes into his daughter's room he looks under the bed and he's talking with her. There's never a, okay, I'm about, I'm going to, because, you know, generally speaking, just as anyone who's worked, when you get home from work, you're exhausted. And it takes a lot just to switch your mind frame. And he just eased into that, you know, just starts speaking to her and telling stories. And it is clear that there's a, I mean, father-daughter relationships are already special, but there's clearly a, a very special relationship there and in the way he speaks to her and in the way he protects her 
And he, you know, obviously he comes across as a protector. And in the most vulnerable scene where he is in danger and the way it's written, how she says he doesn't have it. And her mom has no idea what she's talking about. We all do watching. Mm -hmm. I thought that was the most brilliantly written. They've planted a seed and you understand the context of why this little girl is running out to protect her father in the face of a gun that she is afraid of. We've established at the beginning, she's terrified of bullets. Yeah. To the point where she sleeps under her bed. She's like, there is no such thing as monsters, but I know there are bullets. And she's terrified of bullets, but she has no fear, no fear when she runs to protect her father, who is now helpless in the face of a gun. And the beauty in that, the humanity in that, I think I'm about to go from being super deep to just silly is why I think people put children in <laughs> in, in films is there is a level of brilliant innocence and gullibility that children have that works really well for storytelling. Mm -hmm. I have nothing to add to that. I just think, <laughs> no, you, yeah. put it, you put it wonderfully. Yeah. Thank you. I, th I think that closes that section because okay. that, that was what we needed to work towards. Okay. I think we needed to build on who Farhad was, who Dan Danielle was, and, and his daughter Lara, and just why that moment is so significant, despite not seeming to be tied up with the rest of the story. Yeah. It's the, it's the side story that really tells us everything yeah. in a way. And again, it does offer some very interesting parallels with Sergeant Ryan as well, I think, which is why we should look at him next alongside his relationship with a parallel, exactly uh, mirrored and switched around relationship with Officer Hansen, who is a newer recruit to the oh, LAPD. Apparently Heath Ledger was in talks to play that role and I would have loved to have seen that if that had could have happened, but you know it who, wasn't to be. You know who I would have I thought would have been interesting in that role is um Ethan Hawke. Mm. Well, Ethan Hawke is yeah. I thought phenomenal. Phenomenal. I, I thought Ryan Felipe did a He he did a good job of portraying a very clean cut guy who was probably a bit innocent. Can I say why? I absolutely love that they picked him for this role. Sure, yeah. So we, we talked previously about how Paul Haggis was trying to make a point to liberal America. Mm. That character was liberal America. Yep. I think that he was the personification of the point that was that he was trying that the writer was trying to get across in the sense that he sees racism happen. You can see that he is uncomfortable with it. He knows it's not right. And he, you know, in the scene where he can see that somebody's about to get shot who doesn't deserve to be shot, he's, he stands up to protect. Makes the big protest. He makes yeah. the pro, you know, and then he ends up doing the thing that he does at the end. And that is based on his personal bias. And I think that is the point. I think he is the character that personifies what the writer is trying to say yeah. with this film more so than officer Ryan, because the point is complacency. The reality is he's a good looking clean cut 
You sympathize with him. You see that, oh, he's a good guy. He's trying his best. Even going to his boss and trying to speak out about it, he's told, be quiet, just stick with the game. Exactly. Don't don't make a noise. You know. Don't upset things. We're doing better than we were 10 years ago, so just... Just just roll with the punches. Yeah. Just just keep... Just take it, essentially. And there is nobility in that. I'm not... I'm not... uh, I'm not trying to say that there is not but i the way i interpret the film he is the character that paul haggis is trying to take to task in the moment of when he decides to pull the trigger because he i think the point he's trying to make is don't ever think that you are beyond reproach in certain issues i think that's the point he was trying to make because Mm -hmm. i think that just generally speaking racism has a lot more to do with your ability to wield power and affect people's lives. But bigotry, prejudice, that is something that is that lives everywhere in every community and that people buy into. And you may not have the power to oppress or hurt other people, but if you do not acknowledge your biases, it's a dangerous place to live. And I think that that's what he was trying to say and with this character. What do you make then of the speech very short speech that Sergeant Ryan gives to Hansen as he's about to go his own way. He tells him, you don't know who you are yet. Wait till you've been a few more years on this job and you'll see. Is he purely pessimistic and saying, or is he kind of alluding to that bias? I think it's a little bit of, I think pessimistic isn't really, I, I think I wouldn't even use the word pessimistic. I'm not, proud to say that I don't think he's being pessimistic at all. I don't. I think that he's being realistic given the world that they, they're living in. Because I, I imagine that when you are immersed in a world where you are a human being and you have your own crap that's going on in your life that you have to deal with on a daily basis, whether you like it or not, and then you are tasked to shepherd other imperfect people who are just as imperfect as you are. I think that has a lot to do with the controversy with policing today where, and you know, that's a podcast, that's an entire Mm -hmm. podcast for another day and I'm not going to, but what I, I think about that specific speech, I was trying to give context. I, I think he was both alluding to that, but also being realistic about humanity Mm -hmm. because sometimes when, when people are either naive about life in general, or I think it's one thing to know the reality and decide to act against it either way. It's an entirely different thing to not face the mirror. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what he was trying to say. It's, It's interesting going back to the idea of parables, because using that word reminds us of the Bible. Right. And one of the most famous parables is, well, not parable, let's say, one of the most famous teachings of of Jesus was, uh, let he he who is innocent throw, cast the first stone. Yeah. And there's a sense that, yes, when you are trying to have that persona, you are trying to say, you uniquely, among anyone else, know what is right and wrong and can... It, it ties into the call-out 
culture yeah. side of it as well. The calling out and saying everyone else is wrong. I'm a good person though. And taking that on as the identity, what happens when you're really in a situation where you're tested as a person and you find out there's more to it than just being good in yeah. in quotation marks here, just being pure good. Yeah. Perfect. There's yeah, Hansen is is certainly not perfect. Yeah. But he's too too young and idealistic to realize it yet. Yeah. And it is a shame. Obviously, it's hard to watch a character go on the opposite trajectory. It's easier for us to see someone with a redemption moment. Yeah. It's harder to watch someone who starts out idealistic and then messes up in the worst possible way. But it does, like you said, it does warn the liberals in a way. It, yeah. <laughs> it warns the, the people who are becoming too complacent and talking without really evaluating yeah. uh, where they stand. And and to get even more specific for for myself watching reading and taking things in that act of leaving him there when he realized that he had messed up in the worst possible way to me was the worst possible thing he could have done because then he wasn't taking responsibility but and, it's a free will decision oh of course in which he what is what is a murder charge in the u.s it's usually life imprisonment right California depends. So first degree murder, 25 to life. There you go. So it is a life. to life if committed with a firearm. 35 to life. Mm -hmm. Okay, so Officer Hansen was looking at 35 years to life yeah. for it's first degree first murder, degree with, a murder firearm. with a firearm. Yeah. If it had been second degree murder with a firearm, 25 to life. I mean, he could have he could have contested in court self-defense as yes. well. One one more thing. Second degree murder, well, that's of a law enforcement. It doesn't say if you were the law enforcement officer, but that's interesting. He's off duty anyway. Yeah, So, yeah. But, that, but that was what I was going to say next, is that would have been a very different situation had he been on duty. Mm, yeah. That's very really sad. Yeah. That is very, very sad that he would have been able to cover it up if he had been on duty. And that's what his uh, his other officers know when when Cameron makes his stand in front of uh, the police and is pretty much prepared to get shot. Everyone knows the drill there. Everyone knows the drill. They say it out loud. This man is acting in an aggressive way. That's a sign that it's, somebody it's, is about. To. <laughs> it's it's like this um, stop or I'll shoot yeah. kind of. Uh, or if you if you don't get off my land. In the next five seconds, I'll shoot. It's it's like this justification. Yeah, this man was acting aggressively towards us. Was is they know that's enough for them to not be punished. Yeah. Whereas, yes, the way that Hansen does it would have been a yeah at least there's, thirty there's, five years in prison. There's no way you could have, you'd have been able to. He would have been able to get away with that, and no. he knew that, and it crossed his mind to well, did anyone see? Can anyone mm -hmm. prove it was me? And then dumped and just wants to bury the evidence essentially just want we don't know what happens to him we we do know he burns his car mm -hmm. and that's the last we see of him we don't know if he flees town or if he goes back to the force and claims his his car was stolen that night we we don't know 
I think that's good that we don't yeah. get any closure on that. Yeah. But I think he was a tool that the writer was using to... And the other thing that I wanted, if, if we have a second for that, is I think that also kind of speaks to the religious crowd in the United States today. Well, the religious crowd as well as the as what was once called the obviously racist crowd. So two different groups of people. Where I see the parallel with the religious crowd is the assertion of wanting to be the good people and wanting to be the people who were seen as standing up. I think what the writer is trying to do is warn against that. I think with, you know, or even with the, the idea that you knew what a racist looked like in the past, it's just not true because new groups have made it a point to be clean cut and to look like a Ralph Lauren model or, you know, try your best to look anything like the stereotypical idea of what people would have assumed someone with those leanings would appear. And that's why I think that this film was written for a specific crowd. And so if you were not a part of that crowd, then you saw all the reasons why this was not good for X, Y, Z because it wasn't made for you. It was made to speak to the group of people that he was trying to criticize. And who does that group of people almost idolize? The young, clean-cut looking white man. And also people who are in service in military or police, yeah. fire departments, things yeah. like that, that. There's a sense of because they are doing these these jobs where they have to sacrifice so much. Yeah. That doesn't mean there should be a trade-off between morality. You don't get morality points for for serving your country. Yeah. So that you can then do bad things. Yeah. It's you only get to be considered a noble person if your deeds are noble, no yeah. matter how you choose to yeah. to do that. Your character. Yeah. Is defined by your actions. I mean, this this screenplay is definitely flawed. It has its flaws, but it, it also has so much to unpack. Yeah, I, re I really like your assessment on, on Hansen. I don't think I'd noticed as much as you had. I, I certainly did see him as a mirror for Sergeant Ryan in the sense that they follow an opposite trajectory. So looking at Ryan now, my takeaway from it and having thought about it for, for a while afterwards is that Sergeant Ryan is someone who, like I said, I, I don't think he is someone who wants to see the world through that lens, but he's yeah. learned to use the power that it gives him to hurt others. And it's a flaw. It's a character flaw. Yeah. And then we have to look at these moments as which moments define him. And it's so hard to pick. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to make an assessment of him because we do get to see that he is one of those people who, just as we were saying about with Officer Hansen, and we do admire people who will risk their lives when most other people wouldn't be willing to do it. Yeah, The fact that he would run into a car crash and not care who's in the car, the vehicle could explode at any second, but he would run in, he would be the first responder, is admirable. Absolutely. The fact that he takes care of his elderly father. Admirable watches him suffer, tries to do anything he can to relieve his suffering, to relieve his pain. Also amazing. 
and then <laughs> <laughs> and then yes and it's it's such a problematic part of the i just want to add one more yeah. thing though that i've learned just about people in general people act uncharacteristically when they're in pain that is a human fact i've observed this from the kindest most gentle people who turn unrecognizable when they are in especially, most especially emotional pain. I have observed, and I should, I want to retract that of saying that it, that is a human fact because I have not done clinical studies to prove that. No, but it is true that um, depression is clinically studied as a form of pain. Yeah. That is true. That is true. Yeah. So, so certain psychological states are considered pain and certain nerve responses are considered pain i think yeah. i think that's a safe thing to yeah. say yeah. okay grief actually is pain yeah. as well grief yeah. is pain yeah and i think that you know just after having observed you know someone like someone who has recently lo uh, lost someone that they really loved and cared deeply about different people react differently to grief but i have seen people i knew to be loving and kind and generous behave in ways that were nothing like who I'd known them to be for years. And it's not that it, it excuses that behavior, but that speaks to humanity. And I think that the difference for Officer Ryan is that he has a specific privilege that makes that human condition dangerous in it, that moment. It's interesting because as readers, as we go through the screenplay, we're led to believe that Sergeant Ryan is inherently racist. But it's very interesting, now that I'm thinking of it, when Hanson goes to his commanding officer, which is Dixon. Wasn't Dixon a black man? He is, yeah. yeah. But it's very interesting that Dixon says, in 17 years, there's never been a complaint of this nature towards Sergeant Ryan. 11 years he was under my own personal supervision. There's never been a complaint like this. Are you trying to tell me that we've been wrong all this time? And the truth is that our belief that he is an out-of-control racist cop is only based on one thing we saw him do, which he certainly did do, but we immediately assume he's been doing it for years and years and years and getting away with it. We don't actually know if that's true. We just assume it because we are stereotyping him. And that brings me to my point. Yeah. I think that another, something that may have been lost on most of, it was certainly lost on me until I thought about it a little more after reading and during our discussion is that the writer was speaking more to human condition once again. And, and how had he been someone from a different ethnic group, people would have recognized what he was dealing with differently. Absolutely. But yeah. there, there is a responsibility that comes with the ethnic group that he is a part of that does not, that while he does have that privilege, because he has that responsibility, it's looked at differently because of the power he's able to wield over other people based on his privilege. And so it makes it more difficult to recognize that human, that, that flawed humanity that we all experience when we're dealing with pain and grief, that other characters in the same story expressed in some more violent ways than others, but we recognized it for what it was. We recognized pain. Mm -hmm. 
But on him, pain wore a different mask because that mask has power. To me right now, it's just so surprising how quickly I think we have all drawn conclusions about yeah. him. Yeah. And think there's not much more to think about. Yeah. And <laughs> it just seems like, and it's like the more we talk about it and the more I think about it, I'm like, there's so much more there. There's so much, I'm by no means am I excusing his behavior. I'm just realizing that there's more to unpack. Mm -hmm. And it makes you think about how single incidents as opposed to patterns of behavior are truly quite different beasts. Yeah. And we don't know if this is a single incident. We could probably look at other characters for, for those kind of examples. But it is true how different a beast each one of those things is. Yeah. And that, but how one single moment can define your life. A single split second, even in the case of Officer Hansen, will define the rest of his life. Farhad, his whole life could have been defined by another decision that he made. And yeah, we with with Sergeant Ryan, there is more of an enigma than I think we uh, we initially believe is could be the case. Yeah, because we think we know everything about him due to uh, <laughs> what we've a stereotyping been led to. <laughs> and and also this feeling that well, of course, this is what this film is trying to say. This yeah. is what this screenplay is trying to say. Is of course, it's about the racism in the LAPD, as opposed to thinking these are all still characters. They're all still individuals and not one of them is defined just by their ethnic group or their job. They're, they are still defined by who they choose to be, which is what is, uh, what Flanagan says to, uh, to Graham early on about the difference between him and his brother. There were still choices made there. They still grew up in the same place. It's really, yeah, it's, it's much deeper than, <laughs> Then, than I had thought. Yeah. Should we look at maybe Sandra Bullock's character and her? Sure. Uh, that's Jean, Jean Cabot and the DA, Rick Cabot, play, played by Brendan Fraser, who is Canadian as well. So has that in common with Paul Haggis. And apparently <laughs> they, I think they, they both uh, had a laugh. That? Yeah, they had a, they did bond over that on being so prominent in this <laughs> criticism <laughs> of modern America. <laughs> But there was, I, I just keep going back to, to this. I think there's, there's, that was where part of their privilege was part of the allyship mm -hmm. is because of that privilege of being in that position, you can have this conversation and people won't see you differently or they won't see you as someone with implicit bias because over time they've gotten to quote unquote know you. The thing we we do know that there's no neutrality in the world. Yeah. Otherwise you could have journalism which was completely neutral and it's it's impossible to ever fully separate the author from from the piece that is written. Yeah. It it's possible to attempt it in some way, but it's I think it's better to have a voice as a writer to own that yeah. voice and yeah. just say, This is genuinely the best I can do with my knowledge of the world. Yeah. And if you think Crash is lazy stereotyping, fair enough. Yeah, and I was if, going to say something else. You know, but if, be like, write your own film. Yeah, and write your own film. <laughs> but if, if you are in this position, Paul Haggis's position, I mean, it received some accolades. 
people well, it did resonate some of the best the accolades best. <laughs> yes it, to be fair which yeah i mean it it <clears throat> did resonate with a lot of people it resonated you know again it, again you know it resonated with me but let's go ahead and discuss yeah, some of the characters let's look at jean I, then yeah. uh, because jean she has one of the most powerful speeches of the film there's not that many speeches where people just fully speak their mind there is more nuance in the dialogue in in most of the other scenes but she has this outburst after their car is stolen Mm -hmm. by uh peter and anthony Mm -hmm. to her husband probably the most one of the most important lines of dialogue in the film is when she says she knew and she she felt scared she knew she knew she felt scared but she didn't do anything because she was afraid of being considered racist And now there's a locksmith who she thinks is a gang member and she wants him out of the house and the locks changed again in the morning. And this is, it's so problematic, but there's something, again, an unresolved mystery underlying that. What is the correct thing to do if you think that there's danger approaching? Because I think what's going on is she's got this sense that society is monitoring her mm-hmm. that to be racist is the most terrible thing you can be so she can't be racist so she's she's monitoring herself trying to avoid that ever happening to herself there's something going on there in in her head so many things that i thought and i can only give you my perspective she was so concerned that she would be seen as a racist she I'm just going to unpack it line by line. But she did still react. She may not have turned and walked in any other direction, but she went closer to her husband and snuggled and held his hand. She thought, her her point was, she knew there was something wrong and she was concerned that if she had done what she really wanted to do, which was walk in the other direction or cross the street, she would be looked at as a racist. By whom? She was walking with her husband. It was a well lit, but it was night. No one's paying it. You're no one's paying attention to you. So there's that dynamic between her and her husband to begin with, because that would have been between her, her, her husband, and the two people that she would have crossed the street. Those would have been the people who would have seen her a certain way, and her husband who would have known why she crossed the street. Number one. Number two. She did react. She may not have crossed the street, but she moved in and closer to her husband and looked up at them. It was clear that she was uncomfortable. So it's not as if she didn't react at all. So she it's so almost it's, as if, if... If you're going to feel guilty about feeling that way anyway... Just do what you're going to do. Just do what you're going to do. Right. I um, mean, she recognizes that it's something that isn't to be admired. Right. But also to feel like she has no control, that she's constricted in the way she's meant to behave because society has dictated something... It, it's a difficult question to add to the free will discussion right. because it's it's as if it's a block. She's trying to block it and say, well, I need to always treat everyone with respect. What that also does, I, and again, it's so relevant to today where people are more afraid of being seen as racist than they are of being racist. Mm-hmm. There's more concern for people will now think I'm racist than did I do a racist thing. 
and unpacking that for yourself and working through that, that is highly problematic. And the risk of going too far the other way, yeah. as certain presidents have yeah. done, which is essentially, if everyone's going to think I'm a racist anyway, I'm just gonna... I'm, I might as well go the full mile. Right. I might as well just... Yeah. And you know what's funny? I wasn't even thinking about the president when no, I made that but, statement. Yeah. yeah, you know what I mean? Like, I mean, it rings true in, in his case, but I, I wasn't even thinking about I was just thinking about, once again, anyone who might think that they're above reproach because it would it would be so easy to judge that character and say, oh, I don't do that. I just wish that people would stop worrying about perception and worry about character. Mm. It's very interesting learning about her pain at the end as well, because we do discover her, like many other characters, there's a pain there yeah. that isn't being addressed. She thought she'd wake up angry because her car had been stolen, but then she realized she wakes up every day angry, angry anyway, yeah. and she has no friends, and she's alone, and she's scared, and her husband is cheating on her, which isn't made that explicit in... Yeah. In the film, mm -hmm. in the screenplay, there's actually a line where he, it says he looks at Karen, it's clearly not going to happen tonight. That's when she, uh, Jean has just become injured. So uh, her husband is actually sleeping with one of his assistants yeah. and she's alone. This is one of the free world dilemmas. It doesn't matter if you live in luxury, if yeah. the world around you is a prison. Yeah. And inequality, without looking at ethnicity even, just inequality built into that. You can live in a country like Brazil or Colombia, where if you're rich, you need to live in cordoned off compounds with security all around. Yeah. Because it's the only way to stay safe yeah. when you're rich. So are you really rich? Or are you richer when you're free to walk around and feel safe? And that is where she's stuck. She's the district attorney's wife. Yeah. Yet she lives in this prison. ivory tower here, yeah, this gilded prison. I mean, she was definitely not a likable character. And I had a lot to dislike about a lot of the things that she said and a lot of the attitudes that she had. But I could also see the humanity there. I liked the actor they picked. Again, that was smart because this is someone who is already, and here we go again, talking about how people are seen, right? She's already seen as America's sweetheart and she's already known to be an extraordinarily kind person and fair and just a wonderful human being. So a character this damaging would damage someone else. But with her, it was an opportunity to demonstrate her range in acting. It's a powerful speech it is. in particular. The it first is. one, um, which Daniel uh, overhears as well, which is very hurtful. And again, he doesn't let it get to him. He doesn't. He doesn't continue kicking down as this chain appears to. I think it got to him, though. The way he put oh, those keys down. Oh, it gets to him. But he, he doesn't react to it. Well, he doesn't. It hurts, but he, yeah. he doesn't take the pain and give it to someone else. Right. He just accepts that it was a painful moment. Oof. And that, ta that's, <laughs> that takes real <laughs> character. Yeah. yeah. That does take real character. This movie is a lot. <laughs> um. How about we jump? I didn't find enough with Rick to really talk about. That's fine. Um, so we can jump to Cameron and uh, Christine. So they're both African-American, but 
the idea is that Christine has had a very good upbringing. I think Cameron references that she's was part of the equestrian club or something, yeah. so it's suggested she's gone to a very good school. Which may I, I would like to mention. Well, yes, it was when yeah. the, she was arguing with her husband, mm-hmm. and he was accusing her of not being black enough. And oh, and these are these internal conversations yeah. you're you were mentioning Referring before, to, right? Yeah. Because um, the African American community just. And even Africans in just in the diaspora and within the continent, part of the consequences of colonialism and just global racism has resulted in colorism. And it's seen across different continents, different cultures, different ethnicities. And colorism is a real problem. And within the African-American community specifically is something that I've noticed myself is being discussed on a larger scale and people trying to shift perspectives because we recognize that it's a very, very, very big problem. But yes, that was his way of cutting her down Mm -hmm. with the equestrian team. You know, obviously you're obviously participating in horse racing or horse riding is very expensive. So clearly she grew up with wealth. Mm hmm. And he's now a TV director. Right. So he is wealthy, but based on their dialogue, it's suggested that he is part of upward mobility. Correct. Whereas she is established. Yeah. Yeah. Established wealth. Right. So these two characters targeted, we were first introduced to them because they are targeted by Sergeant Ryan. In the script, it's written that his light flashing through the back of the, the back window of the car reveals her face to look white. Right. Um, he thought she was a white woman. That's, which she that's later, heavily implied, yes. Well, she later reinforces yeah. it. And she... It's in the conversation with her She husband. says that, yes. Yeah. I'm not saying that it didn't happen. Mm-hmm. I'm saying that the way it's filmed... It doesn't look ...doesn't like quite it. convey exactly... It, it's written so clearly into the screenplay that... Mm-hmm. But it's hard to do that. I suppose it's hard yeah. to... You can show what a character sees, but it's hard to show how they saw it. Correct. Because you'll always see it as you, as as the viewer. Yeah. Uh, but in the screenplay, it's written quite clearly as, yes, he is meant to see a white face in the car. And I think that that may have been why she later had to emphasize. Because when I first saw it, and I, and again, when I was when I first saw the film, I wasn't watching it with a critical eye. I was just enjoying a movie. I missed both of those. Mm-hmm. I missed that she was supposed to, you know, have come across as a white woman. And because when I see Tandy Newton, I don't see a white woman. <laughs> um, so I wonder if that was just a casting. She was the best person for the role. And, but even with that light, she looks like a biracial person. <laughs> this is what I find so interesting. When I first saw that movie, I had not lived here long enough to understand that context, even as a black person living in America. I did not understand at the time, and I had not been here long enough to understand exactly how much danger they were in. And it's made very clear that Cameron, he says, I'm going to go and get that out of the glove compartment. Is that okay? There's, the, that it's right, ritualized. Right over my head. Mm-hmm. It's ritualized. Yeah. It's such a part of it. He knows exactly what's going on, what 
he should say, and even then, there's a risk. Yeah. But he knows, I at least need to say this. Yeah. I need to say I'm going to the glove compartment. Yeah. If I do that without warning, sure, a white person can do that. Yeah. I can't do that. And be confident that I would walk out of this situation alive. Yeah. And for me, that was, that broke my heart. And does the situation go over Christine's head? Because that, she's not used to it. That's what I was. That's what I was going to say next. Mm. Is she is someone who grew up with affluence and wealth, and but the interesting thing is, what is established now is that it doesn't matter. Even as a black person, even if you grew up with wealth, even if you grew up in affluence, if someone who is hateful pulls you over, you are just another black person. It doesn't matter how rich you are. And I think that that dynamic played into the argument that they had when they got back to the house because they were both in pain. He's in pain because he's just been humiliated. He's supposed to be the protector. He's supposed to be the man. He's supposed to defend his wife. And he stood there and watched her get molested. And he has to deal with that. But he's also aware that to have done anything different could have ended up with either him or both of them Dead. getting killed. Yes. Correct. So he was worried about their survival, but that doesn't take away from the fact that he felt powerless to protect his wife. And I think the theme in his, I think the theme in this entire film is powerlessness because we see it in almost every character. At some point or another, they feel powerless about something. And how do they react to that powerlessness? And what do they do? And for him, that humiliation, that historic humiliation by the same group over and over and over again in different scenarios, in different situations would drive anyone crazy. She's also in pain because the man... So I want to take a step back and speak just from personal experience as a woman or a specific kind of woman in the sense that I'm a very independent-minded person Respect is such a deep part of love to me. Respect is such an integral part, especially of romantic love. Or I'm straight. I prefer men. Men that I've loved romantically, I had to respect first. That is non-negotiable. I saw her pain so differently as an, as an adult woman with different life experiences, watching, reading, and going over my notes personally I had a completely different experience watching that scene because when I first saw it I was much younger there are certain context clues that went right over my head there are certain cultural clues that went right over my head oh my goodness reading it also added a different layer because it kind of explained what she was supposed to be communicating what the actor communicated beautifully as a black woman putting myself in that situation where my husband, my lover, my protector stood by and did nothing while someone with power took advantage of me would break me emotionally. It would break me. I wouldn't be able to look at him the same way. But then I take that a step further because I have had certain life experiences and understanding the position this man, lover and protector is in, understanding that oppression 
and seeing things a little bit differently because of living here for a long time and learning about his certain historical context and seeing why she later asked for his because when I first saw it and I saw her ask for his forgiveness and try to make out I, I couldn't understand I was like what is wrong why would you ever and I, I understand why now because understanding is also an integral part of love she does she's not willing to listen to him in that first argument which is completely understandable but he is trying to tell her at least let's why, just get out of here yeah, alive why he chose to act the way he did yeah and yes then that feeling of powerlessness seeps into both of every them. all of his waking moments yeah. after that point yeah the sense of rolling with the punches there's only so long he was able to listen to another one of those comments at work until eventually he just decides he wants to do something anything just to feel powerful again and if that means staring down an, a group of cops with guns then so be it it's kind of a difficult scene in that you you need Anthony and Peter to try and steal his car the fact he starts fighting back though it's immediately evident what's going on he doesn't care anymore yeah. he'd rather be shot he's he's experienced what it was like to get away alive and humiliated and he doesn't want to feel humiliated again he'd rather they shoot him but he carries on fighting yeah it's a powerful turn in the character yeah very powerful yeah and I think that kind of goes again with the running theme of powerlessness and how each character dealt with it because it seemed like so far the different characters who ha who dealt with that powerlessness decided to do something about it, whether or not it cost them, like not considering what it would cost them, they decided to act out or act in some way. And I just think it, it just goes down to the, that root of pain driving people to action. And sometimes those actions are things that are characteristic and other times like, where did that come from? But often I think in the, in the situations like with, with him where it was clear he just couldn't take it anymore, the audience sympathizes with him versus Officer Ryan where everybody was like, you are such a jerk. He was a complicated one. He, that character taught me a lot. And what should we make of the scene Talking of Sergeant Ryan, but the fact that he rushes into this burning vehicle to find out that the woman he's going to be saving is Christine. She's had a crash after an argument with, with Cameron. So again, this ties back into the breaking all of the <laughs> semblance of realism in the film. <laughs> this actually ties back to the first page of the screenplay again. Yeah. Detective Graham saying, we crash into each other just to feel something because we're so alone. So she just had this big argument and then happens to get into a cra car crash. Yeah. Very terrible car crash, much worse than the one at the beginning of the film, which is just a simple rear ending. In this, the car has flipped and the other car has caught fire and there's gasoline all gasoline over. Gasoline trail, yeah. yeah. All over the, the road. Mm. And yet Sergeant Ryan rushes in. Is it supposed to be a redemption moment, perhaps? Or is it just meant to be that's what that character would do and that was what he was always willing to do? In the context of the scenes that came before, it's a redemption moment and that's why I think it's the most problematic scene, probably because of that. Yeah. But why does it bother us so much that this character would get redemption? 
there's something I think there's something inherently about storytelling there as well. <laughs> we like clear-cut heroes and villains. We don't like to see a character that would do something so selfless and have done something so hurtful within the space of an hour because that happens in the first yeah. the first half of the film, but it's yeah. basically the midpoint. And then Christine, I do think that Tandy Newton did phenomenal a, job. Yeah, of the the terror and the terror of being trapped in in that place and then seeing who it was who came to save her but still what what should we make of that scene is it is it still what ruins the film or is it it didn't for me i understand the criticism of of all the people who could have come to save her in a city as large as populous as los angeles that it would have been the same police officer is highly improbable but let's go back to what you said in in this of looking at this in the context of a parable because someone being noble should not give them a pass to behave irresponsibly but people do give people they hold in high regard those passes that is how people have behaved for a very long time and it has fostered a culture of not holding people accountable and i think that's why people have a problem with that specific officer having that redemption scene because it almost it almost excuses the way that it was acted it's almost like there's an understanding between the two of them after he saves her life they're very close actually it's not that it's not actually written that way how close they get they almost become like lovers their yeah. their faces are close together they're reaching across the way it's done is done with such intimacy because of the space. You do start to wonder if Sergeant Ryan was saving a 55-year-old man from the the car, would he be holding that man and yeah. <laughs> so so closely? Yeah. Obviously not. So there is this sense of maybe that's part of the problem is this this sexual tension that is added in to yeah. the scene. For me, it is. Yeah. Again, considering that there needs to be a level playing field with sexuality and not the wielding of power by one party over another one. Right. Otherwise, it's not genuine. And and not only that, but that she allowed him is not realistic. It doesn't matter what ethnicity she was. Any woman who had been in that situation, even if that man came and saved her life. She would have preferred to have died. No, not that she would have preferred to have died. And even because after, that's the way he poses it to her is you're going to die unless you let me help you. Right. No, that's not I'm 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 speaking about after he drags oh, after, her out. After of she the is car. already out. Yes. Yeah. After she's already out. They're still close. There's still a level of uncomfortable sexuality there that is extraordinarily unrealistic. Even after someone has just saved your life. Yes, you are grateful and that, you know, presents an entirely new dynamic, but you still are the same person who did what you did. That kind of closeness would either not happen or would take time. And that it happened right away, it just added to the the heap of unrealistic in that scenario. Because it's not very likely it would have been the same police officer you know, um, the conversation, the, the, his argument with her, her reaction to seeing him, all that seemed authentic. Mm-hmm. So aside from the fact that 
it was highly unlikely that he would have been the person to save her life. Everything else seemed pretty authentic in their reactions to each other up until he's dragged her out of the car and is still holding her close and she's allowing him to do that. Mm-hmm. That for me was the, okay, come on guys, you know. That is kind of the flaw in the screenplay overall is mm-hmm. that you can be 80% authentic, but gotcha. But that missing 20% is very important. Yeah, And I think that's where we're coming down right now and I still think there's so much of a conversation to have. <laughs> Yeah, and it could go on forever. Yeah, essentially. <laughs> yeah, uh, which is a good sign of a good work of, of writing. A yeah. good, yeah, a good work of art. Um, I have described the podcast in the past as well to people as well that uh, we end up treating screenplays like literature, even though they were not necessarily not to intended to be read as literature. Yeah, when you read a very good screenplay, that is what you will get. You still have those elements. You have yeah. characters. You have decisions, you have metaphors, you have everything that could be in a work of literature. The metaphor here, probably the one that's problematic, is actually the positive spin in a way, which is the, oh, if it can snow in winter, anything's possible. The anything's possible has limits, it seems, at least. Sorry, if it can snow in winter? That's that's what Paul Haggis um, said. In about, Los Angeles? In Los Angeles. Okay. Sorry, if it can yeah. snow in winter, in Los Angeles. <laughs> yeah. um, but that's what he was he was getting at, is anything's possible. Yeah. But is it possible for someone who had been abused to switch so quickly? No. That's, like th- yeah. We're talking about anything's possible as long as the characters remain true. True to their, yeah. So this is where, yeah, I think that's kind of... Moments like that are where he lost me. Yeah. And it's the feel-goodiness that seems to... Almost like a bow. Because there were so many instances that were so beautiful and that there were no answers that I think allowed the audience to think and Mm -hmm. come up with our own conclusions. And I thought that added to making this a great piece of art. It was the trying to, it's what came across as trying to tie things up with a neat little bow, in my opinion, that made it less interesting or that just made it seem more trite. So we're going to talk very quickly about Peter and Anthony, just in case uh, there's any listeners whose favorite characters were Ludacris and (laughs) and Lorenz Tate. Um, I thought he did a great job in playing someone who came across as not happy-go-lucky, but just very carefree. Mm. (laughs) Just going about life and, you know, just, yeah, maybe a little care, maybe a little, uh, just la-la-la-la-la, just, you know, almost the comic relief to Anthony. Yeah, uh, at the start especially. At the start, yeah. One thing I found very interesting in the... Obviously not the end, but... (laughs) One thing I found very interesting in the written screenplay was mm. how they're described as being on a date. It's it's written a couple of times in mm-hmm. on the page mm-hmm, that mm-hmm, we're mm-hmm. meeting this couple mm-hmm. on a date. And because I hadn't seen the film in so long, I you know, thought... Even after I read that, I didn't put that together. Yeah. I thought, oh, so now they're introducing this couple called Peter and Anthony. <laughs> and then I realized, oh, he's just having fun with 
writing this that okay sure it's different when you write a screenplay and you're going to direct it yeah but i would have misread that because what he's referring to is that they've been to a restaurant together but they're clearly not meant to be lovers they're but two guys who are about to steal a car but it was just written that way yeah i you know you know i was actually going to uh talk about that or it's like did they completely cut that scene out because where's the couple on a date <laughs> you know um i wonder though because when i actually sit and think about it do you because you know there's some gay couples who just you would look at them and just think they were best friends yeah and uh there's also a character in the wire um omar who uh is by the way is portrayed in I that have, way that he's a very hardcore gangster but yeah is just happens to be gay and that's just a part of his life so I, I should point out that i am one of the unfortunates who has not yet gone through the wire i'm working on that <laughs> sure it's it's not a huge spot. okay he's, he's yeah, a character yeah. no, that's no, no. in it throughout but yeah he's I, I just wanted to warn you just in case. Um, I needed you to understand the <laughs> I reference. Like, yeah. I don't. Um, but, you know, I didn't catch that until you said that just now. They don't come across as lovers to me. They don't. However, because the playfulness. Yeah. They come across more as best friends or brothers yeah. than lovers. There's a bromance. Yeah. But I just think if we only saw them out in the streets, that's one thing. But we do see them in settings where it's just the two of them and if they were lovers i think we would see more of that if if it was something they were trying to hide we would then see it when they're in private true i love the the slurs that they use as well just because there, there's this <laughs> leveling out of um you know everyone can be ignorant right everyone can right. be bigoted right that's that's, that's, that's part what of i was it. trying to say before when it comes to the koreans yes they are very bigoted. Yeah, that was really uncomfortable to watch. Especially when they run over... Uh, Choi. Cho Mr. Choi. Yeah. Is Cho Choi... I don't think Choi is a Korean name. Is Choi a Korean name? I'm not sure. I think I've Choi heard is that, actually a Chinese name. I've heard that the, the names of the Koreans weren't very good. Yeah, I was like, Choi is not... Choi doesn't sound like a korean name it sounds like a chinese name from the screenplay right. i understood that the koreans were meant to play a slightly larger role in okay, the film yeah. overall and it even in the order even across, in the ordering yeah. that was actually one of the issues that i had was feeling like they were almost in the background yes i didn't like that because we don't develop any of them at all there isn't enough time not enough dialogue to develop it the only th real character arc <laughs> if you can call it that is kim's at the end she tells Choi that oh i was so horrible to this this woman whose car i crashed into mm. i was saying such terrible things and i feel bad about it right that that was the whole character so maybe, arc there so maybe those last few pages that they left out of the film they could have used that to develop the korean characters yeah so mr haggis if you ever listen to this awesome podcast for the director's cut. <laughs> <laughs> Please, you know, we would like to have seen more of that, especially to the point where all these beautiful different perspectives were considered. But I do think Peter and Anthony's perspective added a lot of value to the film. I think so. As we, we have talked a bit about Anthony right at the beginning, yeah. if people still remember yeah. where we started. <laughs> 
But yeah, Anthony and his his conspiracy theories, his blaming of everything. No personal responsibility. He has some legitimate points. He does. He doesn't need to know the facts to know that something's wrong with the world as well. But it is the question of personal responsibility, and it's very important that Cameron is the character who points that out to him, that he doesn't know who he is and that he's an embarrassment. And that is one of the most powerful scenes as well. There's a lot of powerful scenes. Yeah. But just having that perspective, having another character... In that context. In the context of what just happened and the fact they've basically got a second chance now that it's time to wake up. I think that dynamic between those two men was really necessary but also beautiful because just I I really felt for Cameron's humiliation throughout the film. Uh, My heart just kept breaking for him because, again, after having lived here so long and now understanding certain cultural contexts i have so much more sympathy and understanding and heartbreak for that character than i did the first time i watched that film and just identify with his pain a little bit differently and i'm glad that they put that in there do do you think it matters that peter is graham's Graham's brother brother, or do you think it gets lost in the in the just the scope of this film i do because that they weaved in their mother and how she thought that he was the golden child yeah and she's a heroin addict which isn't shown so clearly on screen it's a nuanced portrayal i actually think that sometimes when you're using visual medium it's still you still need to give it a bit more time. I think the same thing happened with the reveal about the fact the bullets were blanks. Mm -hmm. Flashes and disappears on the screen in a second and people could miss it. I think it could have been made clearer that that their mother is is an addict as as opposed to... Uh, seeming, she seems very unwell. Yeah, <laughs> but, she just but seems, if you weren't she seems, familiar with, which I think is also an interesting yeah. portrayal of addiction, because mm-hmm. I think oftentimes addiction is criminalized, and and maybe that was intentional. You know, maybe mm-hmm. they just didn't want to criminalize their mom, because addiction is a, it's an illness, it's a sickness that a, a person who is addicted to heroin or cocaine or whatever is ill. They're sick, and as a society we criminalize that and oh you know throw them in jail or stay away and all these things and then the people who have who love the sick person have to deal with this person every day or every every time that they interact they allow themselves to be interacted with and they have to consistently worry about these people and i think that particular way of portraying their mother added a layer of sympathy for the boys i think Mm-hmm. specifically for Graham because he was a loyal son in spite of that because most people would have given up at some point or another. Yeah. And and Peter has. He's and Pe- disappeared. Right. And, oh, you know, Peter came by and, you know, and, but I think that the way that, I don't know if that was intentional, you know, to make her just seem sick instead. Yeah. I mean, I like I like the way you you've spun it to save it almost. You know, it, <laughs> I mean, maybe that was intentional, maybe it wasn't, but yeah. I just it, it feel made that, me more um, sympathetic to that character. 
And I, I think it added a layer of nobility to Graham. I, I, I sometimes feel like, well, the writer's vision should make it on screen. And then I think, <laughs> but, but he directed Hollywood. it. So he. That's a good point. <laughs> so he did he, get to. But, you know, but at the same time, producers. There's you a know, lot of work going on there. Yeah. And he had to do a lot. <laughs> and there are other opinions that kind of go in, you know, mm -hmm. that influence. Especially if you having if you have financing and things like that, you have to consider other people's opinions. And also, probably on the rating. Mm. Yeah, uh, mm. there's already um, there's already guns, swearing, sex. Maybe maybe heroin would have pushed it over into. Yeah, the, it's like <laughs> oh okay, the here comes the peanut gallery. Yeah. You know, yeah, you're right, you're right. So because yeah, they need it. The most important thing for this film wasn't winning an Oscar; it was getting distribution at the beginning. Yeah. that's all they needed to get. So maybe there was an issue there as well. Yeah. Um, yeah, I maybe we don't need to talk forever about these two characters. I yeah. just wanted to add a little footnote onto yeah. them. Yeah. Um. So this has been a very this has been a wonderful conversation. It has been. I, Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. So this was Crash, written by Paul Haggis. I I think we could probably talk forever yes. about this. So yeah. <laughs> we have to stop somewhere. <laughs> um, I really hope this has been really useful to people to listen to and to reconsider this film and not jump to conclusions. There's been a lot of attention-grabbing yeah. titles such as Worst Film of the Decade and worst oscar winner of all time yeah and those are just attention grabbers and they i think are. if you actually it's have clickbait a, if you have a full conversation about this there's plenty to talk about and i don't think a bad film would do that yeah at least at least a valuable film let's call it a valuable film yeah whether it's exactly what people needed or or if it's the best possible use of all its themes who knows but a, someone was willing to to try and tell that story yeah and it was worth it i think all right then thank you so much thanks again for listening i know this was a long one so congratulations on making it to the end if the show is helpful to you and you would like to support us please share the episodes on social media or recommend it to your friends that would be really great i'll see you in two weeks bye for now